This evening we're going to think about some words, not in Philippians chapter 1, which I read earlier, but in uh, the epistle to the Romans, chapter 15 and verse 13. Now, Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. And there Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, as I was sitting last Sunday evening listening to Andy preaching on Romans 15 and wondering what I would preach on this evening, I thought, well, that's a lovely verse uh, for this particular occasion, uh, this particular juncture uh, in the life of the church and uh, in the, uh, the life of Andy and Jill too, and others too in the church in different ways. I will add that I'm not going to go on and carry on preaching through Romans for the next three and a half years, so uh, just for you to be reassured on that, on that point. But just this particular verse seemed to me to be really helpful. Because we, we are at a juncture, aren't we, in the life of the church. Uh, we've given thanks to God for the way he's blessed the church uh, with good ministry uh, through more than 50 years in his goodness. And uh, we've been remembering that this Sunday is Andy's last Sunday as pastor. Not the last time he preaches here, but the last time he preaches as pastor. So we are facing uh, an unknown future. We don't know what lies ahead as we just sang. And it's really significant when a pastor retires or moves on um, because uh, pastors and their wives fulfill a vital role in the life of the church. And there's no doubt that we will really miss Andy and Jill and everything that they have done. And we, we're anxious to see someone coming uh, to take up the work. And then Andy and Jill are also facing a future which is not entirely certain. It hasn't taken shape yet. They're stepping out in a sense in faith, trusting that God will lead and guide into a new form of ministry. He's not retiring from ministries. He's retiring as pastor of the church here at St. Melons. And then there are, there are people in the church who are facing real problems and difficulties. Families have been bereaved recently. And uh, it's a new situation for those who remain. And there are those who have been facing serious illnesses, uh, some of them for some time, and those who are caring for them. Uh, and again, there's a sense in which the future is unknown. Even if we think we know what's going to happen, we don't know for certain what's going to happen. And uh, it's so important to, to think about that situation. We live in a world that is uncertain and full of doubts. And one senses that uh, in the way people speak about the various problems in the world. And, and Paul was writing to a, a church here in Rome, which he'd never met, but were there in the heart of the Roman Empire. And they'd come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were the ones called out to the church, the ecclesia, in Rome. And uh, it was about 57 A.D., and uh, very soon, fierce persecution in AD 64, just seven years ahead, was going to break out uh, upon these Christians, led by Nero, trying to blame the Christians for the great fire of Rome and 
and Christians were going to die in terrible ways and in great numbers. And, and Paul doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but he knows there's persecution. He knows that that has been his experience throughout the time he's been an apostle. He's been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and so on. And uh, he knows that the way is, is uncertain. And he's getting near a long letter that he's written to them. And he wants to encourage them. And uh, they're a small minority, perhaps, in a pagan society. And uh, humanly speaking, their future is very uncertain, if not actually, some would say, hopeless. How can they stand in the face of the might of the Roman Empire? And so he wants to remind them of God. And really what he says in this uh, prayer, really, uh, is based upon all that he's written previously in the letter. And he has a, just a lovely description of God. He describes him as the God of hope. What is that how you think about your heavenly father? He's the God of hope. And whatever may lie before us in our own personal lives, in the life of the church, God is a God who gives hope and who inspires hope. And that was striking in the first century as it is in the 21st century. And we live in a, a generation that is characterized by hopelessness. Uh, and you sense it uh, in the world. Economic problems. There was a crash in 2008 and then COVID came and there were more economic problems. We hear of earthquakes and disasters in Haiti and fires in the States and in Russia and other places. The hurricanes that hit New Orleans and the area around it and devastation comes. Or the conflict in Afghanistan and uh, the helplessness of those powers that have tried to help that country to do anything about it. And uh, men of violence sweeping into power. Or, or we see a younger generation growing up and uh, many struggling to find their way and not certain whether there will be jobs for them. The care of the elderly as more and more of us are older and uh, we need care and uh, the medical facilities under great pressure. Perhaps you've been waiting for a long time for an appointment. It hasn't come yet. Long waiting lists. Millions of people waiting. The whole pandemic that has come. And uh, personal problems of illness and disease. And uh, sometimes of depression. And uh, then facing death itself and loss. All these things are part of life in this world. And so isn't it wonderful to be reminded of the God of hope? Because the first century was a, had all the sort of problems we have. And as far as the Christians were concerned, because of persecution, even greater problems than we have. But our society is particularly hopeless. It's characterized by hopelessness because it's a, a secular society affected by secular humanism. Those of us who were older perhaps could remember a time when it seemed as if Christians and the churches were an influence. But that's not the case so much now. We're marginalized. We're a bit odd. We may even be dangerous. Uh, and secular humanism has taken a grip and taken a hold upon our society. And uh, it's linked to all kinds of things that are assumed now. Uh, by people 
at large. Uh, you may know the name Bertrand Russell. Uh, he was a man who was born in Wales and died in Wales. He bought, was born in Trelech near Monmouth and he died in Penryn Diedrath. He lived to nearly 98 years old. A man of outstanding intellect, born into an aristocratic family, mathematician, philosopher, and his sort of thinking and people like him has had a tremendous influence. He was born in 1872, um, but his influence and the influence of others like him have permeated our society. And we sometimes think about people who, who don't believe in God. And I wonder whether you think what they do believe in. And Bertrand Russell was particularly articulate in the way that he spoke about the fact that he didn't believe in God. His parents died, both of them, before he was five years old. And uh, he was brought up by a grandmother. And uh, so he experienced sadness early on. And he was adamant that he didn't believe in God and he didn't believe in the Bible. Listen to what he wrote. Three passions, he said, simple but overwhelmingly strong, have governed my life. The first, the long longing for love. And he never found it, really. He had a number of broken relationships. The search for knowledge. He pursued that with great vigour. And then thirdly, the unbearable pity for the suffering of mankind. These passions like great winds have blown me hither and thither in a wayward course over a great ocean of anguish, reaching to the very verge of despair. A man without hope. And he, he said, I felt I was being driven to despair. It's not just simply to see that people don't believe. They believe other things. They don't believe in the God of hope. And uh, Russell eloquently describes the inevitable outcome of a life from which all faith in God and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been removed. And I wonder sometimes when we realise what it means to live in a society like ours where people are constantly bombarded with secular godless thinking. And uh, Russell was able to express it very articulately. This is how he put it. The life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, toward a goal that few can hope to reach and where none can tarry, lo tarry long. He's talking about finding in this life some kind of fulfilment. But if you do find it, he says, you don't, you don't enjoy it for long. One by one, as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. Evolutionary thinking was developing when Russell was born. Omnipotent matter. No feelings, no emotion, no cares, no power to help. And so he continues, for man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gates of darkness, 
It remains only to cherish. Ere yet the blow falls. The lofty thoughts that enable his little day. Isn't that terrible? What a terrible description of this man who lived such a long life and that was it. There was, he was adamant, there was no God. And yet he lived in a world uh, where there was suffering. The suffering of mankind, he felt it. But it made him angry and bitter and hopeless. And I wonder sometimes whether we have compassion uh, for those in this world who do not know God. Does it, does it drive us in our desire to see them come to know the Saviour? Because the reason for this hopelessness is the fact that all hope comes from God. He is the God of hope. And there is no hope outside him. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he, he talks about how the Gentiles have begun to share in the privileges that Jewish people have known. And uh, he speaks about, they once, about what they once were, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope. And I wonder whether you realise the significance of that. But when you read Bertrand Russell's words, you realise what it means to be without hope. Nothing. No hope for the future. Why? Because they're without God in the world. And sometimes perhaps we think, well, there is care and compassion in the world. Now, there are people who say, well, we're humanists, so we, we don't believe in God, but we care about others. And, and sometimes professing churches have gone down that line and said, well, the main thing is to be caring for people. And they've developed an entirely horizontal way of thinking. I listened to part of a service on Radio 4 this morning, and there was hardly any reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But all kinds of things that would be... A, politically correct there was no message of hope and uh, so that way of thinking is it's not really an ally towards better things because God has been excluded and once you take him out there is no hope there's only darkness think think of the day when to be able to contemplate this when when Adam and Eve had sinned against God and had known a wonderful fellowship with God and then he he sent them from his presence, lest they should eat the tree of life and live forever. What a devastating day. And the way to the tree of life guarded. And it wasn't long before they had two sons and one killed the other. What a dark, dark situation it was. But as they went from the garden, there was a promise that one day the, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and would bruise his own heel. In other words, there was hope. Even in that darkest of days, God didn't leave them without hope. One day, someone's coming. And when he comes, the defeat of Eden will be transformed. Have you ever experienced hopelessness? You know, those dark times... You can't see the way ahead. You can't see the future. And uh, you feel sick and empty inside. It's a terrible experience. The Proverbs say, hope deferred makes the heart sick, sick. And uh, when we're struggling with things that are too big for us, we need hope. Well, think of Jairus and his wife in Capernaum and their, their only daughter of 12 is dying. And they're wondering what they can do. And 
and they know Jesus. He's been based in Capernaum. They've heard him teach. They've seen him heal. And so Jairus sets out and he, he finds Jesus. And he pleads earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And Jesus goes with him. You see, darkness, they're going to lose their little girl. There's nothing they can do about it. They've tried every possible medical uh, avenue open to them and she's still dying. But there's hope. There's Jesus. And uh, he is their only hope. And he agrees to come. And so hope is linked to God. There is no hope apart from God. Why? Because he is the God of hope. And so we can find hope in God. And perhaps this evening, you need to find hope personally. And it's to God that we go. He, he's the God of hope. He's the God who gives hope, the God who inspires hope. And hope here is an expectation, a strong expectation. It talks about confidence and certainty and security and a guarantee. It's not some weak aspiration, well, I hope things turn out all right, but it's a firmly rooted expectation. And Paul is writing to these Christians who before long will be faced with a terrible onslaught of persecution in which they will feel helpless and darkness will close in upon them. And he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. If we want to find hope, it's to God you must go, to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, earlier in this letter in chapter 8, God himself is described as acting in hope. Uh, in chapter 8, Paul talks about the creation, uh, the curse on the creation because of human sin. And the creation, he says, was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of, one, of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So when the Lord submitted and subjected the creation to futility, he did it in hope that one day the creation itself would be liberated. And when? Well, they'd be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Isn't that a wonderful uh, understanding of climate change and all the things that are spoken of, that actually the future of God's world is linked to his purposes in Christ and the calling of people from every nation to himself. It isn't simply that God preserves the creation that he has made. But when he subjected it to frustration or futility, it was in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. Of course, that hope is certain. He wasn't simply saying, well, I hope everything turns out all right. He had determined that one day uh, the creation would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into that freedom and glory of the children of God. So he's one who inspires hope in every part of our lives. And we have many exhortations in the scriptures to hope in God. The psalmist says, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Or in Psalm 42, why Oh, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Do you have times when you're disturbed in your soul and you're downcast? And the psalmist asks himself a question. Why is it? Why are you feeling like this? And then he says this. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my saviour 
and my God. Put your hope in God. We had a couple who came to the Bay Church some years ago who'd come to this country from Iran. And uh, they came without the proper papers, and so when they arrived, they were put into detention centers. Uh, The wife was put into one detention center and the husband into another. And the wife was pregnant, expecting their first child. Now, they were in a strange country. They didn't understand how Britain worked. They'd been in Iran and they knew how Iran worked. And uh, the, the wife was uh, in the detention center with other Muslims. They came from a Muslim background. But she was a different kind of Muslim to the people who were in the detention center. And they made it clear that they weren't interested in her. In fact, they despised her. But there was a Christian chaplain who, who went into the prison and he met this lady. And uh, he gave her a Bible. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing, isn't it, to give a Bible, but where do you start reading? I don't know how it was, but she she started to read Psalm 42. And that question, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And she took those words, put your hope in God. She wasn't having contact with her husband. She didn't know what lay ahead for her, but she put her hope in God. She just took God at his word. They were restored to one another and they were able to continue. They're still living in this country and the little girl was born and then another little boy. But what she needed to hear at that point when she was alone and desolate was that word to put her hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. She was reading, I should say, in a Farsi version of the scriptures in her own language. And God spoke to her through his word. And he gave her hope. And uh, that's what we need, isn't it? When the the prodigal son is in the far country and he's at the end of himself and he's made a total mess of his life and it's his own fault and he doesn't deserve anything, he remembers his father and that's a shaft of light, a hope coming into his life. And when we put our hope in God, we put our hope as as Arazu did, the lady I mentioned, in God's word, in the promises of the scripture. Uh, earlier in this chapter, Paul says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And things were written that we might have hope. When we read the scriptures, they, they give us hope. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, May those who fear you fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. And as we read the scriptures, they're full of hope and encouragement to us. And uh, they tell us about God, and about what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the source of all true hope. In generations gone by, when somebody became a Christian, uh, they would use this phrase to describe them. They're rejoicing in hope. Lovely phrase. They believe the gospel. What's the result of that? Joy and hope. You know, there was a beginning to believe that God is gracious and that they've been forgiven for their sins and they passed from darkness into light. Rejoicing in hope. And of course, that's not something which is only true when we first become Christians, but it's true as we go on in the Christian life. 
joy and hope. The writer to the Hebrews talks about uh, God's promises, his unchanging nature and his purpose uh, that he confirmed with an oath. And then he says this, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We fled to take hold of the hope that is set before us in Christ. And then he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's gone behind the curtain into the very presence of God. You know, you see a boat being buffeted by the wind and waves and there's an anchor. And he's saying, well, we have an anchor for the soul that is steadfast and sure. And it's founded upon God's love in Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to know him in the Lord Jesus. There's a a wonderful promise of grace, isn't there, and of love and of kindness. Uh, The verse we're looking at says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Trusting in him. I am trusting thee. Lord Jesus. That's where the Christian life begins, doesn't it? Repentance doesn't save us. It simply turns us to the Saviour. And it's trust in him that saves us. As we put our confidence not in ourselves, but in him. And uh, then we keep on trusting. Not just trusting for salvation, we do that. But we trust him in the day-to-day affairs of our life. I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, one of our hymns says. In other words, it isn't something where we can see the future, but we're trusting in him. Uh, The hymn that we sang, I Know Who Holds the Future, Uh, the first time I became aware of that was when a young couple coming to the church in Deeside, in the very early days of the church, a young couple married with no children and one day on a Saturday morning a icy Saturday morning the husband was going to work he was a hairdresser and his car skidded on the ice and hit a tree and he died leaving a a very young widow behind and uh, she chose uh, this hymn I know who holds the future what she was really saying is oh Lord I don't understand what has happened but I'm trusting in you isn't it strange we think if If we'll understand, then we'll trust. Bertrand Russell didn't trust because he didn't understand. It was a mystery to him. But you know, we trust. We trust the God of miracles. Give to him our all. Are we trusting in the Lord? Putting our faith in Jesus Christ to be our saviour. And that work is the work of the Holy Spirit in us who moves us to trust him. John Bunyan says, Hope is never ill, when faith is well. Faith is well, hope is never ill. And that's the issue, isn't it? Trusting God. Perhaps you're facing something in your life and you just need to trust God and uh, to have your confidence in him. We, We heard about Lydia this morning and later in the same chapter there's the account of the Philippian jailer a man who felt he was so secure, a Roman civil servant, he'd done everything he could with these prisoners, he put them in the stocks, he uh, made sure they were secure because if he lost them, his life was in danger. And then suddenly there was an earthquake. And in Turkey there are lots of earthquakes. 
and uh, the prison doors were open and the chains fell off. Now what did he do? Middle of the night, he took his sword and he was about to kill himself. Now that's the, the logic, isn't it? Well, if I'm going to die, I might just well kill myself. And uh, Paul shouts out, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And a man comes in and he's trembling. No one is trembling. He's just nearly killed himself. And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and all your household. That's the message. It's complicated. It isn't long. And the man believed and he was transformed from despair to hope. Uh, Not only is hope only found in God, it's wonderful when it happens. And he's now trembling, not with despair, but with the wonder of God's love and mercy to him that he has saved him and uh, delivered him from killing himself. And uh, that's what happens when we put our trust in God. That Philippian jailer, he didn't know the phrase, but he was rejoicing in hope uh, because God had been wonderfully gracious to him. Are you rejoicing in hope? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, then for the first time you've experienced hope in your life from the God of hope. And there is fruit that follows from trusting and knowing. In this prayer, Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, jumping for joy, peace in our hearts. Is that your Christian experience? Is that the kind of thing you expect? You know, sometimes people are are brought up in in Christian teaching, Bible teaching, that discourages that. If you're too joyful, you might be being presumptuous. If you're too confident in God's grace, you might be taking it for granted. Well, Paul wants these Christians in Rome about to enter into the fires of persecution to know that the God of hope is one who fills them with joy and peace as they trust in him. And they overflow with hope. And that's the amazing thing about these early Christians. They died in the most terrible ways. They spoke of their hope in Christ and their certainty that they would be with the Lord. And that's the kind of hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ inspires. There's fullness, there's abundance, there's overflowing joy. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 12, as Andy was preaching not so long ago, There's this great exhortation. Be joyful in hope. It's a command. It doesn't say wait for joy to come, but because you have this hope, rejoice in it. In chapter 5, rejoicing in the glory of God, even though we we suffer. When Peter writes to Christians also facing persecution, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And what's the consequence of that? You are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. There's joy, you see, as we believe in him. And you are receiving, he says, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christians are joyful. It's the fruit of of trusting in him and of knowing him to be the God of hope. And peace comes with that too. And then Paul writes to the Philippians, he tells them not to be anxious in anything, but in everything, to make their prayers and requests known to God with thanksgiving. And then he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The God of hope is the God of peace. And he gives us peace. Sometimes perhaps we've heard devastating news about ourselves or somebody else. And uh, it affects us deeply. But as we come to God and we, we make our requests known to him with thanksgiving, that peace he gives us. And it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The situation doesn't go away, um, but we, we're resting in him. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. And we're able to endure and to continue. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he says that endurance, that is perseverance, keeping going, keeping on, keeping on, is inspired by hope. You know, the world mocks that and they think we're fools. But it's real. And it's because of the God of hope. Pilgrim's Progress is full of lovely pictures. Bunyan had a lovely way of describing things. That he, he describes a time when Christian and at that time his companion, Hopeful, uh, go into Bypath Meadow. Uh, the, the path they're walking is really quite tough. So they say, look, there's a nice, nice smooth path there in the meadow. We'll take that one. It looks like they all go to the same place. And Christian says, come on, let's go there. And Hopeful's not sure. But they do. And, uh, well, things don't turn out as they thought, and they lose their way. And they get caught by the giant despair. And uh, he lives in Doubting Castle. And his wife is called Gloom. And uh, suddenly they're told they've got to go with him. And uh, they're locked up in the castle. You know, he's describing, isn't he, an experience that we have as Christians. We, we haven't done the right thing. We, we've stopped trusting. We've we perhaps disobeyed. We've lost the way. And suddenly the enemy of our souls comes in and he tells us, it's all up with you. And that's really the message that is coming through from a giant despair to Christian and hopeful. And hopeful says, you know, I knew we were doing the wrong thing there, but because you were older and wiser, I, I thought we should do what you said. But here we are in the, in the dungeon. And every so often the giant comes down and gives them a good beating. And his purpose is to make them believe that they'll never get out and they'll take their own lives. And that's the temptation that comes to Christians because of doubt. And so they take several beatings and he does everything possible to discourage them. And uh, then as they're still there, they've had nothing to eat or drink. And uh, this is what Bunyan says, about sat midnight on Saturday night, and midnight is a dark time, isn't it? Christian and Hopeful began to pray and continued almost until break of day. Then Christian suddenly broke out in amazement. What a fool! What a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might, might walk free on the highway to glory. I have a key in my bosom called promise which I am sure will open any door in Doubting Castle Hopeful says that's certainly good news my brother get your key out and try it then Christian took the key of promise and pushed it into the lock of the dungeon door the bolt fell back and the door came open they walked out into the castle then they went to the door leading to the castle yard the key opened that door also now they came to the great iron gate leading outside. 
The lock to the gate was exceedingly difficult, yet they unlocked it and pushed the gate open to make their escape. But the gate made such a creaking sound that it woke the giant, who jumped out of bed to pursue his prisoners. And then he was seized by one of his fits and lost the use of his limbs. The prisoners ran to the king's highway, where they were safely beyond giant despair's jurisdiction. The key promise. What are promises about? They're about hope. What do Adam and Eve have as they leave the garden? Hope. One day, a deliverer is coming. All the wonderful promises which God has made for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're all encouraging us to put our hope in the God of hope so that we are filled with all joy and peace as we trust in him. And we overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the work of God's Spirit in our hearts. He's the one who strengthens us and encourages us and reminds us of the Saviour and enables us to serve him and to make the gospel known. The prophet Isaiah, as the people have been in uh, exile in Babylon, says, even youth grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's his hope revives the spirits. It's possible sometimes for us to Christians to become very wise and very cynical and very doubting instead of being filled with hope because all the promises of God will surely be fulfilled. The Lord Jesus sent his disciples out into the world and he told them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That was in the first century. I've been to parts of the earth which are a long way away and it takes a long time on a jumbo jet. Um, but they were to take that gospel to the ends of the... How would they do it? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. How can we take the gospel to St. Melons, to Cardiff? How can we tell them about a saviour? Well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit and hope in our hearts. When we have that hope, John tells us, we purify ourselves. We want to live godly lives. We want to serve the saviour faithfully but also we've got a wonderful glory to look forward to. Whatever happens, wherever he may lead us, we have the hope of glory. And Paul has this lovely phrase when he writes to the Colossians. And he talks about the glorious riches of a mystery God has revealed, which is this. Christ in you. Christ in you. Dwelling in us. United to him the hope of glory. It's not just him out there, but it's him in here, living in us, changing us, transforming us, and giving us the hope of glory. He made her the name Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary in Burma, Myanmar as it is now, facing many trials and difficulties, losing loved ones. And he said, my future, my future is as bright as the promises of God. That's it, you see, hope. Dwight Moody, we heard about him this morning, said, I am walking towards a bright light, and the nearer I get, the brighter the light is. Is that true for you? Why? Because it's a God of hope. And Paul wants these Christians, who he hasn't met, and to whom he's explained the gospel in great detail, he wants them to know the God of hope, filling them to overflowing 
with hope. I remember hearing a story of a, a Christian who was very seriously ill in hospital in the Midlands. And uh, the pastor went in one Sunday night after the evening service to see him. And uh, the man who was ill probably didn't know that there was another Christian in the ward who overheard what was said. And when the pastor went to visit the man, the man said, oh, it's so good to see you, pastor. But they've told me there's no hope. And the pastor had the most wonderful reply. He said, brother, from here on, it's all hope. And everybody in the ward heard it. And you think that's the message, isn't it? There's never for us no hope. But we may come to that time when it's all hope. And that's what Paul wants them to know. He wants them to be filled with all joy and peace as they trust in God. And to overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we think of the God of hope, we can pray for ourselves, can't we? And say, O God of hope, fill me with all joy and peace as I trust in you, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I may overflow with hope. Let's pray. Our gracious God and eternal Heavenly Father, we thank you for the comfort of the Scriptures. We thank you for your inspiration to the Apostle as he wrote this letter, conscious of his own trials and struggles, and also all that lay ahead of those Uh, believers in Rome who had heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for their man for us. We can rejoice that you are the God of hope. And that whatever may lie ahead of us in our lives, the unknown future, we know that you are the one who has given us wonderful promises. And as we trust in you, you're able to fill us with joy, and peace by your Spirit. Help us to know these things and to know them in a greater measure and to know that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in his name.